BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to episode 57. My name is Mike Lewis. Glad to have you on the When to Jump show. This week we've got a serial jumper, which might be an understatement. But before we get there, I want to go to the mailbag. Thomas Simmons writes, in 2014, I left behind a conventional career path, Deloitte in New York City and banking in San Francisco, to make a documentary film about an American adventurer and sailor by the name of Mike Plant, having had no prior filmmaking experience. Turns out that Mike Plant uh, was Thomas's uncle and his story that is extremely personal to Thomas and everyone in his family and uh, others he had touched along the way. So shout out to uh, Thomas. His website for the trailer, which we want to give out to everyone to go check out, is coyotedocumentary.com slash trailer. Thomas, thanks for reaching out to us. Best of luck with the documentary. Congrats on your jump. And now for a very interesting jump from the world of the arts uh, as well. Uh, Robert Fitzpatrick joins us on the When to Jump show. Robert has had 13 different careers, according to him. That includes the international managing director of a global uh, international art gallery in Zurich. He was the Pritzker director and chief executive officer of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. He was the dean of the School of the Arts at Columbia in New York City, Columbia University. He was the executive producer of the film It's My Party. He was an independent consultant based in Paris, specializing in arts, entertainment, leisure, and communications. He was also the president and CEO of Euro Disney. And before that, he was president of the California Institute of the Arts. Before that, Robert was the vice president of the LA Olympic Organizing Committee. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Without further ado, a serial jumper and just an illustrious one at that, Robert Fitzpatrick, episode 57 of the When to Jump podcast. Why don't we start with the the way you think of your career and to share with our listeners the jumps you've made and, and perhaps whether it's most recent or the biggest jumps first. I think that'd be very uh, compelling as far as diving in. Uh, the biggest jumps was probably after high school. I spent seven years studying to become a Jesuit because I'd had fantastic teachers and I wanted to teach. And then I realized that Probably the religious aspect, particularly because I was in the south of the United States and there was a lot of racial bias. And when I walked with Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King, I was told that I was bringing a scandal upon the Catholic Church. And so I said, you know, this is not what I want to do. I'm going to do something else. And I went off to do a PhD at Johns Hopkins University in medieval French and 19th century French literature. And then lots of other things started to happen. How hard was it to leave, especially with growing up, you know, to pursue something in the religious sector or to to go after what your family or your community wanted? I mean, how hard was that to 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 change lanes from, given that that sounds like that's what you were on a path to do for seven years? I think the hardest part was losing a sense of community. I was with this astonishing group of really smart men who cared about the community that we lived in 
who loved teaching, loved learning. And when I decided that the religious part was not the central part of my life, but the teaching part was, and I continue even at this point in my life to be something of a teacher, it was not easy for the first month or two. And then I said, okay, onward, new life, change. What sparked that within you? At what point did you say, this isn't the life for me that I'm going down uh, You know, at, at that time? It was quite literally the experience of being told that while well, I was marching with Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King and doing some civil rights things, that by doing that, wearing a Jesuit cassock, the Risa garb, I was bringing scandal upon the Catholic Church and upon the Jesuits. And I thought, this is not possible. This is not a community I want to be part of anymore. So I left. Was there pushback? Actually, I had a very good Jesuit superior who said, you know, I think you're probably making the right decision, but you're four weeks away from getting your master's degree. I suggest you keep your head down, your mouth shut, get your degree, and leave that afternoon. And that's what I did. And, you know, I went off to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore to study French. I had fantastic teachers. I got fellowships from the French government to study in France in Avignon. I'd never been to France. It was an amazing experience, and it's also there where I met my wife. But that discovery of what it's like to speak another language, it's a really humbling one because all of a sudden you realize there's more than just one way to think, to speak, and to be. And that confrontation with the otherness of a different language, a different culture, a different literature, was profoundly nourishing and rewarding. What brought you to Johns Hopkins for that program? What made you think, this is what I'm going to stop my, my push forward in the, in the Jesuit world and, and, and get to Johns Hopkins? Why French? You hadn't been there. What was the reason for that jump? You know, I have to back up a step because I came from a family, Irish, Catholic, poor. Nobody had ever been to college. When I was in high school, I was at a Jesuit high school in Arizona, and one of my teachers said to me, you know, you need to get away from your family. You need to discover there's other ways of thinking. Would you like to stay with my brother and his family in Hollywood? And I said yes, and I went there and spent a month. And what happened in that family was I walked into the house and there were recordings of opera and classical music, art books from the Greeks and the Romans to Picasso, and novels and poetry. And they said, you can do whatever you want while you're here, but every night at table, you have to talk about something from each of these piles. They left. I went to the turntable. I pushed the button, and it was Un Bel Dive Dremo from Madame Butterfly, one fine day where she's hoping Pinkerton will come back. And I'd never heard opera before. It was an enormous, ast astonishing discovery. So I spent hours that day and on subsequent days listening to music and looking and reading art books. I had never been to a museum. I had seen images here and there in school, but never had any concentrated time. And all of a sudden to go from Greeks and the Romans to the Renaissance to contemporary at that point, artists like Picasso, was another universe that I didn't know existed. And so those experiences really profoundly changed me. They made me say, I want to be involved in the arts. And then there was a moment of depression because I realized I can't sing, I can't dance, I can't draw. This is a universe, a party I've been invited to, and I don't belong. And I was really depressed. 
about 10 days later, I woke up and I said, you know what? It's true you can't sing, dance, or draw, but you can damn well be a good audience. And that saved my life. And if I look back over my 13 or more different careers, the common link has been being a good audience. There's a French term that's porte-parole. English is pretty banal, a spokesman. But the porte-parole is the carrier of the word. It has a kind of sacred context. And when you're carrying the word about something you care about, you really do have a sense of a mission and a calling. Wow. So that sounds like a really important, not intervention, but guiding point from your teacher when you were in school that sent you to Hollywood. Yeah, that, you know, I've been really lucky in my life. I've had good teachers. The first one was my sixth grade teacher who I had to go and study with when my mother was having a difficult presidency. And I had been first in my class, but I'd skipped classes and I was younger than any of my classmates. And so I decided to become the class clown. She opened the door, the screen door, slapped me across the face, and she said, Bobby, get inside and start working. You're pretending to be dumb. You're not. It doesn't work. Go to work. And I went back from being last in class to first in class again. She literally slapped some sense into me. Today, the teacher would probably be arrested for that because you don't think you can slap people anymore. But it struck me that all of us at some point in our lives need either a physical or an emotional or intellectual slap, something that wakes us up and says, look, here's who you are, here's what you can do. So I'm really grateful to that woman, Camilla O'Connor, as well as to my Jesuit teachers that sent me to California. What's the through line, and maybe you can speak for those who don't know your background, you helped put on the 84 Olympics, you ran Cal Arts, you were in Europe with a you know, Fortune 100 company building out a presence there, you were a professor, you know, what, what, how do you think of your career looking back through these different things? I mean, it's, it's one of the most colorful resumes I think we've ever been able to touch on on the show, and and maybe otherwise, what, what stands out from these different experiences for you? I'll tell you a story. When I was doing the Olympics, I went to about 30 or 40 different countries to bring arts groups. And one of the countries that I went to was China, which hadn't participated in the Olympics since 1932, also in Los Angeles. And we knew the Russians were going to boycott, and China's presence was even more important. So I went to sort of test the waters, I spent two weeks traveling around China, and at the end I met with the American ambassador and he said, you know, you're going to have to be very patient when you meet with the Ministry of Culture. They're not going to be pressured. They don't want to move quickly. So I go the next morning for my meeting with the Ministry of Culture and my translator, and I start by saying, Mr. Minister, I want to thank you for these opportunities, and I'm prepared to be very patient. And I must have said that three times, and finally the minister said something, and the translator said, he wants to know what you want. So I told him, I want the Chengdu Acrobatic Company and X and Y. And he gave a one-word answer, and I started to say, well, I'm going to be patient. The translator said, he just said yes. And I looked at the minister and I said, forgive me, why did you say yes and so quickly? And he said, because you speak French. And I looked at him with disbelief, and he said, you know, 
when you were in the outskirts of Chengdu, you spent an afternoon with a musician in his 70s who had studied in Paris, and you spoke with him in French. And because I know that you've learned another language, I know that you've also learned that there's more than just one way to think and to speak and to be, and therefore I'm prepared to trust you. Hearing that from a Chinese Ministry of Culture about somebody speaking French, it would have been different if I was speaking Mandarin, just stunned me. And again, it was that importance of discovering the value of otherness and of difference instead of being afraid of it. That was one of the experiences that really marked me. I've enjoyed every single one of my careers. And I think the common thread has really been carrying the word sharing with people. When I brought theater companies from around the world that had never been here to this country and did Shakespeare in French with no translation and brought Pina Bausch and dance companies, I brought Royal Opera from Covent Garden that had never been and it came to Los Angeles and that was the beginning of the Los Angeles Opera Company. To see those things happen was a source of real satisfaction. And the criterion I used for a lot of my career, certainly when I was running arts festivals, when I was in my early 20s, I was invited to a Seder, and I'd never been before. And when the youngest child asked the question, why is tonight different from all others, and thus begins the recitation of the history of the Jewish people, I was so struck by that question that I used it for the rest of my life. And so when Peter Uberoth and the Mayor Tom Bradley asked me to do the Olympic Arts Festival, I said, Okay, but I want absolute freedom, no committees, minimum of $10 million and anything else I can raise, and I want to be able to do things that have never been seen in this country before. And that idea of bringing things unseen, doing things that hadn't been done, of being able to answer the question, this is different, here's how it's different from what we already have and already know. That's an exciting, astonishing, nerve-wracking thing, but it's an amazing experience to have. And do you just, is that just where you bet on yourself, where you know if you get, were given $10 million and and that type of freedom uh, and that bravery to kind of do things that have not yet been seen, that that'll just work? I mean, how did that happen? Well, I was terrified every time when I brought... Ariane Manushkin's Théâtre du Soleil from Paris to do three Shakespeare plays, each four hours long, in French with no translation. And I built a theater in a soundstage. I was terrified. This was the first of the foreign theater companies. And I said, I can't even sit still. What am I going to do if they don't like it? How am I going to know? And Ariane Manushkin took me by the hand and we walked underneath the stadium seating. She said, in 20 minutes, you'll have the answer. They're either going to lean forward into the play or lean back to get up and leave. At 19 and a half minutes, I was ready to have a heart attack. I closed my eyes. I heard that creak. And I said, vous avez gagné. You've won. Not a single person left. They leaned forward. So if everybody had left, I don't know what I would have done. Probably left Los Angeles in humiliation and embarrassment and maybe become a monk again. But you take those risks. They're not stupid risks. They're calculated risks. And above all, you build a really good team of people. 
I think I've really been lucky because I've never been terrified about hiring people that are smarter than I am and people that will stand up to me and tell me when they think I'm wrong or crazy or just out of my mind. So you're somewhat prepared to take risks if you've got that kind of a team. Yeah, it does come down to team, I feel like, in so much of this, of who do you surround yourself with. And it's so fascinating because you did that in so many different genres, too. I mean, it just is, there's just so much diversity in the, the jumps that you made. And uh, did you ever feel like one one would, you'd stay put in one area, you know, whether it was, you know, working on the Olympics or, or, or in corporate, international corporate affairs or, you know, or in academia or in the arts? Was there at some point you said, okay, I've jumped enough? No, I probably should have said that at least a half a dozen times. But I always liked doing something different. And when I finished running CalArts, I got offered other university presidencies. And I said, but why would I want to do that again? I've already done it. I want to do something else. And I remember vividly when I left Columbia, where I was dean of the School of the Arts, to go to the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, Penny Pritzker was the chair and she introduced me to the staff, and somebody on the staff said, well, why did you take this job? And I said, because I don't know how to do it. And <laughs> Penny yelled, my God, we just signed a contract for an outrageous sum, and now you're telling us you don't know how to do it? And I said, Penny, if I knew how to do it, why would I take the job? I'm a quick learner. I'm taking it because I want to learn how to do it. She has never forgiven me for that. Um, but I think the thing that we most bounded, bonded on was that notion of the commitments of intensity, not of duration. Because when our first meeting, I told her that story, she said, two things I really like, that attitude, how long will you stay? And I said, 10 years, and not one day longer. She said, it's a deal. And then she said, the other thing I really like is that you can do an hour's business with me in four and a half minutes. <laughs> And that's about how to get to the essentials, what is important. The rest you sweep away. You don't waste time on things that can't be changed or are not important. You focus on what can be, should be, and ought to be changed. Wow, that's important for work as well as just in life. I feel like that's applicable to anything. You know, when I was 40, my daughter, who was then 10, came into my bedroom and she said, Dad, you've always been the youngest everything the youngest university president, city councilman. What are you going to be now that you can't be the youngest anything anymore? I wanted to strangle her. And then I said, you know what? I don't know. And at 78, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. I like learning. I like making a difference. I would not be good at being a bank teller or managing something that's already running. When I was offered the job at, uh, at the MCA, the headhunter who approached me said, you know, I know you've got a fantastic job at Columbia and they want to keep you, but this place is really in trouble. They fired the first director, the director, they fired the curators, they got financial problems, they got a building that they don't like. It's right down your alley. And it was, because it was a chance to make a difference. And when you can make a difference, it's hard not to go all in because you give yourself totally and you s surround yourself with really passionate people 
who want to help you in that process. Yeah, I think it's about seeing that opportunity and knowing. No, I mean, it goes back to what you said: knowing the uncomfortable and and being okay with it, knowing it's going to be hard, and and that you might not know the ropes, but but knowing it's worth doing, right? It's taking the jump. And it is being uncomfortable. There are moments I thought I'm out of my mind. Why did I just do that? And then I took a deep breath and another deep breath. Said, "Well, you did, so get on with it." But there are those moments that just, you know. Kierkegaard, the great existentialist philosopher, talked about taking a leap in the dark. Well, that's what your book is about. That's what your life is about. That's what your podcasts are about. It's taking a leap not into light where you know all the answers. It's taking a leap into something that's unknown, but with enough confidence that you've got skills and a good sense of direction to find your way. That's a beautiful, beautiful way to put it. I, I, I got to read more uh, historical philosophy to, uh, to get my jump context up to speed, Bob. You know, it's funny. All of these things that I thought were beside the point, when I think about my life, these phrases like Gabriel Marcel and Kierkegaard and others come back, and I realize how enriched I am. I don't, somebody said to me, didn't you feel like you've wasted seven years by spending that time in the Jesuits? And absolutely not. I may be the only extant human being who's read Cicero and Virgil aloud in Latin in the entirety, who's read Xenophon and Homer in Greek. But those were not wasted times, wasted experiences. The very process of learning you know, you, when you play squash, you've got a whole set of muscles that you've also trained to do other things. That's not wasted effort. You don't use only the muscles that I need for this particular task. You want a sense of balance physically, emotionally. You want a sense of balance intellectually. So the skills that you acquire doing different things are not wasted skills. I had a student at CalArts one time, and he was a great theater director. And five years later, he wrote me a letter, and he said, I'm now a commander in the U.S. Navy. I'm a pilot. I wrote him back, and I said, do you feel like you wasted your time at CalArts? And he said, no. I knew that there was other people who were going to be better theater directors than me, but I didn't waste a minute. I'm probably the best commander that they've got in the Navy right now because I learned how to direct and how to lead and see the world in a way that none of these other people were seeing it. So you don't have to come out of a standard background to be able to do a job. What you have to have is the passion, the curiosity, and the craziness to say, I'll do it. I'd like to end about you know on a topic of legacy. So before we got on the phone, you were speaking a bit about how you waited in line uh, at an I, an Apple store to talk to someone about a new phone and there was some young folks around you. And, and what was it that you kind of grasped from that conversation? One, their intelligence, their curiosity, and also a desire to speak with an adult, to think out loud about things, not a teacher, but somebody who's got a little living under the belt. You know, I tell my kids... I will never loan money. I will give it, but I don't want families to be destroyed and friendships to be ended because of debts that can't be repaid. And I had an experience when I was 
first in England, I went to Royal Opera wanting to see the opera. Nobody had a ticket. And finally this man came up and he said, here, young man, here's a ticket. And it was for a 250-pound box seat. And I said, I can't afford it. And he said, yes, you can. I'm giving it to you on one condition. For the rest of your life, you're going to make it possible for other people to go to a concert they couldn't otherwise have been to. So spend some time in the rest of your life giving away tickets for things that people couldn't otherwise do. And I've done that forever. And the same is true about mentoring. I've had great mentors, great teachers. You pay that back by giving back in the same way. Well, that was actually my last question, was, was kind of what would you leave, maybe it was part one, but what would you leave our audience and listeners with as folks who are taking jumps, thinking about it, wandering, putting a toe into the unknown, getting out of that comfort zone, considering getting out of that comfort zone. You know, from your vantage point, what would you what would you leave folks with? I'll give you the last word. I came across some writings by Rabbi Nachtman, a nineteenth century rabbi, who said, Never ask directions from somebody who knows the way you might not get lost. And you have to stop and think about that. Because if you're asking directions and you want to go from point A to B, in a, or A to Z in a linear fashion, that's one thing. But if you don't get lost, you don't discover. So what I would encourage the people that listen to these podcasts, the people that are reading your book to do, is don't be afraid to get lost, to wander in a city, to wander in an environment that you don't know, with people that you don't know, cultures that you don't know, languages that you don't speak, and discover getting lost is a gift because that's when you find. Well, and I appreciate you spending a few minutes with us uh, on the When to Jump podcast, and I'm grateful for my friend Mike, uh, who happened to meet you just a few days ago, and we immediately knew that this was a uh, this was a jumper we needed to share with our community. So thank you for taking the time. And I look forward to crossing paths many more times as well. I do as well. And thank you so much for this opportunity. I really had fun. That will do it from our conversation with Robert Fitzpatrick in incredible episode 57 I hope you found his jump as interesting as I as I did and, and as I still do. Certainly a philosophical conversation on how we think about life and what uh, role jumps play as part of them. Uh, but for a man who has jumped over 13 different times in such just profound ways, uh, I, I just, I don't know, I'll find myself going back to this conversation quite frequently going forward. So if you've got a jump, uh, it doesn't have to be as unique as Robert's. It can be any type. We'd love to hear it. You know where to find us, whentojump.com. The contact us form is super easy to use. You can contact us through social media, at whentojump across Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those things. We love to hear from you. We know there are a lot of Robert's, Robert Fitzpatrick's out there listening and a lot of people that are very different from Robert. And what's unique about the show is we get to feature them all. So reach out to us, go to whentojump.com, follow us on social and tune in next week. We are doing our first ever check back in episode with one of our earliest guests on the podcast. Stay tuned for who that will be and why that jump story has changed 13 months later. My name is Mike Lewis. Thanks so much for listening.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.